Welcome to the Behind the Drapes podcast. I'm your host, Kenny. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Shamil Asher, who's one of the cardiac anesthesiologists here at the Department of Anesthesiology at Rhode Island Hospital. Dr. Asher is probably one of my favorite attendings here, mostly because he's been super supportive of all the things that I've been doing this year, but he's also just a great mentor and a great friend to work with in the operating room. Before coming to Providence, Rhode Island, he was in Chicago where he does anesthesia residency. Prior to that, he actually went to medical school at Brown University, and that's where he was first inspired to do anesthesia by one of our very own Dr. Rotenberg. In this episode, we're gonna be talking to Dr. Asher all about his life story and about how he brought a new life to this world, his son, Ion. Stay tuned to see what's going on behind the drapes with Dr. Asher. Because you know you're going to finish with that hill coming up the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it's going to be the same. I don't know for sure. Yeah. But probably I would think. So. I would think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, hopefully we'll get a bigger contingent from our department. Right. I think we'll be the recruiting. I think we uh, made it look like fun last year, so. Yeah, I think we did. And then the thing afterwards is a lot of fun. and Right. So yeah, hopefully a few more people and, you know, uh, expand beyond just the you know, residents and attendings and get some other people in there too. Yeah. Great team building. Well, welcome Dr. Shamal Asher to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. The, the very first one. That's right. <laughs> Happy to have you. Thank you. Um, my, my pleasure. So Marathon Talk, that's what we've been talking about. Shamo was the one who came to me last year and convinced me to do the marathon, even though I had already previously signed up for a marathon the month before. He was like, hey, we got to do this. We got to do this half marathon. Yeah, I remember that. It was funny. I was in a funny stage in life because I was expecting my baby at the time. And it was almost like a little, uh, you know, midlife crisis I was having. I was like, what are all the things I need to get done before this uh, baby arrives and changes my life? So one of the things that I, I don't remember how I found out about it is this half marathon. And I knew you were into running, at least. I didn't know you did half marathons and marathons. And then, uh, yeah, but you're, you've always been my sort of like, you know, if I have any ideas, I kind of like run it by you or, you know, sort of try to get you in on it so that yeah makes it's it just, happen. You absolutely made it happen last year. That's just because I'm like your yes man. I'll just, I'll just say yes to you, no matter what you put in front of me. Well, I'm hoping that you kind of, you know, yeah, I, I, that's true. But hopefully there's good quality <laughs> stuff coming. That's why you're saying yes. It's not just, you know, total yes. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Uh, so since you touched on it already, how is being a dad, a brand new dad? Uh, it's amazing. It's, I mean, you know, it's um, life-changing, of course. And uh, it's sort of, it's so much more, you know, just kind of puts in perspective life, I think. And uh, so much more about you know, Ayan, my son, rather than now me and, you know, and, and my wife and, you know, we used to have kind of like, uh, it used to be about us only. And now there's this, uh, you know, new being and we're totally responsible for him and he's totally reliant on us and it's sort of obvious, I know, but it, it didn't really click until, you know, he came along and now uh, he's, you know, four months, almost five months uh, next week. Wow. So, he's, you know, he's kind of developing his own personality, he has his own like you can really you've seen the evolution over just five months mm -hmm. just so yeah it's been uh you know life-changing of course and i feel like we uh you know we we're kind of later in life that we sort of ended up having a baby so it's uh sort of a long time coming in many ways right uh, so it's, right it's, it's been fun it's, it's not easy but it's, it's certainly been fun how far off do you think your expectations were when you were like thinking about having a baby and what you were expecting versus reality 
Uh, that's a tough one. I think Saima was much more prepared. I think she kind of, uh, you know, had a little more perspective. I think um, even for my own nephews and nieces, I wasn't really, you know, involved. I'm the youngest child in my family. So certainly mm -hmm. I go and visit and I was there for all their parties, but certainly uh, baby caring was not part of my, uh, the things that I did. So all of that was like new for me and I had to learn it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's about as expected, I, you know, but I think no one can really prepare you until you get into it. So people right. tell you there's going to be sleepless nights, but I don't think you really understand until you, you're you sort of in it and it's still ongoing and you're like, oh, wow, this, this is the real thing. <laughs> is it like being on call continuously for the rest yeah, of your life? It's, it's harder because on call, uh, certainly you've had call nights that you get breaks in between, right? Like you, you're not in charge of taking care of a patient, but... If, you know, for in the beginning, uh, Ayan was kind of like our ICU patient because we had to keep track of eyes and nose when he ate. <laughs> and then, of course, you're sort of doing all the uh, activities of daily living. You're feeding him, you're changing him, you're bathing him. So it's right. kind of like ICU patient 24 7. It was all about him the first, uh, you know, I took six weeks off. I took, you know, sort of my vacation as a paternity leave. And it was really all about him. And, you know, my wife was recovering as well. So. We had like, I had two patients for a while there. Was, so right. I think it's harder because it's literally 24 seven. After a call shift, you go home and you're post-call and you can detox for a little while, but it just never ends here. That's right. Do you think having two parents who are physicians or in healthcare was helpful at all? Uh, I don't know the alternative, right? I only live with this reality, so I'm not sure. But I think uh, certainly it helped. And I think, I, I, I don't know if, you know, neither of us are pediatricians. So, you know, we, we were learning as we went along. Um, but hopefully we were sort of able to keep uh, things in check a little bit more, both, you know, it's always the new parent anxiety, but, you know, certainly we went through times of that, but so I don't know, maybe it helped a little bit, but certainly neither of us knew anything about newborn, right? Because we're, we're not pediatricians. So we were certainly doing the same thing that I think anybody would do, go to Google and look things mm -hmm. up and call the pediatricians in the middle of the night for questions and have tons of questions at the peds appointments because we're sort of trying to figure things out as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was anticipating you were going to say is like, it just sort of strips you down of everything, you know, and kind of humbles you in a way that you can't really anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, the, it is very humbling. Like it, it you know, you think you, you know, or you think you kind of have a, an idea of sort of how things are going to go. Cause that's pretty much, especially sort of in our field, uh, we're all pretty type A going through medical school. We kind of have to have a ducks in, in a row to get through it and residency fellowship. Uh, and then now it, it is really unpredictable. We don't, I don't know what the day is going to be like and the, what, you know how the evening is going to be like uh, because it's really guided by Ayan, what, you know, how he's doing, how he's feeling. And we haven't, knock on wood, haven't had to deal with a sort of sickness or anything yet, like, you know, the, a flu or a virus but I'm sure they'll come and they'll be even more derailing. So, so right. in a way it's kind of freeing because I don't have any plans anymore. And I come home, I, I have no plans at all. I'm you know, like, you know what you're doing. Yeah. I was like, we'll see what happens. And if he goes to bed, then I'm like, Oh, I guess I have a free hour now. Yeah. Um, and if he doesn't go to bed. Then I'm just taking care of him. But uh, yeah, in a way, in a way it becomes predictable. Yeah. And before I would have all these like agendas that I was like, okay, I'm going to get home and get X, X, Y, and Z done. And now right. I don't, including going to the gym i no longer have that as an expectation <laughs> so how, how do you work that in now are you still waking uh, up in the morning i try so it depends basically it's like week by week now 
Yeah. And it depends on my call. So like last week I had a night call, so I was able to go during the day and then on my post call day, same thing today. Nice. And weekends, uh, depending on um, how everything's going, I'm able to at least get downstairs during one of his long naps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, and it's it's funny because I have to be ready. So, uh, you know, these are these are this is nothing new, but it's just things that I've kind of discovered. Uh, right. I change into my gym clothes first thing in the morning because I don't know when he's going to take the long nap. So I'm in gym clothes for a while during the day, and uh-huh. then I put him down, and then I look at my wife. I'm like, okay, so you're okay. You think he's going to nap for a little bit? I'm going to go now. Nice. And then I no longer have the luxury of long warm-ups and stretches and stuff. I'm going straight to the workout. Mm-hmm. And uh, and many times I get called up and I, you know, pause it and come up and then go back. I, I know for a fact, even a year ago, that would really be irritating because my workout is getting uh, yeah. up. But now it's like part of the expectation. So, I, so it's actually better in the sense that I do what I can. And if I end, end the workout and it's not woken up yet or, you know, my wife doesn't need me, I'm like, okay, well, that was a good workout. <laughs> Successful. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It changes your whole expectation. It really does. Yeah. It's all about the uh, sort of the pre-expectation going in. And uh, mm-hmm. that's been the big adjustment, I think, just to kind of balancing work and, you know, personal goals, like running a half marathon and uh, right. you know, a baby at home. Right. Uh, how is like the time management going with you and Saima now that you're both back at work? You guys are in daycare or I should say Ions in daycare? Ions in daycare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's tough. I, again, it's unpredictable. I think uh, I went back to work at, you know, six or seven weeks. So I kind of had to, like Simon was at home for another you know, six weeks or so. She was she was out for three months. Uh, so it was harder sort of transition. And certainly I think, uh, yeah, I, again, I, I, we knew it was going to be hard. So I think it's exactly as we expected in that sense. We've been lucky that the daycare has uh, been good and Ayan actually enjoys it. So when we drop him off, he's smiling and we're picking up his smiling. So that has made it easier for us. I do see the value of weekends now, evenings and weekends for that matter, because um, before, again, it wouldn't, it didn't really matter to me whether it was a you know weekday evening or a weekend evening. We would kind of just plan around it. But now with limited time that we have with Anne, that uh, you know, as I said, I don't do any work at home now on the weekend on the weekdays and on the weekends, mm-hmm. I get completely off and try to you know fit time for for Ayan because that's the only time we get you know extended times we get with him. And the right. weekdays, many times his peak, his like best behavior is during daycare hours. And then I go pick him up in the evening and then you're doing all the evening stuff and the fun playtime is during the day. So I have to make the most of the weekends now to do that. Yeah, I feel like I remember when you first came back to work, you said, I didn't used to understand how all of these people would be so excited to leave work and go yeah. see their kids. But now I totally get it. That's exactly right. I, I didn't. I didn't understand when people were like in a rush, and I'm like, oh, it's it's okay. It's just another right. 15 minutes. But now I see the value of those 15 minutes. And same with weekend calls. Like I used to take a lot of weekend calls. Um, now I try not to, or at least um, I've certainly cut back quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that's always stuck with me when you came back. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's not it's not groundbreaking in any way. And I'm sure, especially people who've gone through it and have. Uh, you know, obviously realize this, but I think uh, it's really hard. Like you can read all the books about parenting and you can kind of, you know, prepare all you can, but until you're going through it, I don't think you really get that, you know, uh, personal sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, like, I like the ideas about it, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, I found 
yeah, a lot of things that I used to think were like silly or odd or not a big deal. I realize now that I'm like, oh no, actually these kind of things do make a difference. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's made, you know, humbling is the right, right word. And yeah, give a lo lot more slack now to everybody too. I've right. Been going through this over the last few years that I just didn't have any appreciation for. Right. And you're in the department where people, a lot of the attendings are around your age and all have young kids. Um, how do you feel like the cardiac department has been in terms of you going through this process? Um, yeah, I think very supportive. I, 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 exactly as you said, I'm not the only one. And um, a lot of people have already been through it and are going through it. Many of our colleagues are uh, sort of in this sort of phase in life. And uh, so actually, I feel like I it's very easy for me to even talk about it at work. I uh, ask for advice all the time from my colleagues who have just recently been through this. Um, one of my colleagues, um, Caroline Hunter, just gave me a book about, um, you know, sleeping, getting the baby to sleep a little bit more. And I haven't quite made it through reading it, but I have it. But those kind of things, like it's very easy for me to, I feel lucky that I have people I can talk to and uh, get advice from. Um, and everything sort of, sort of leading up to this, I've gotten advice from our colleagues as well, including the daycare that we go to is the same one that our colleagues go to. And the when we were choosing to buy a house, we chose a location based on the you know advice we got. Um, so yeah, our department, I feel like is unique in that sense that everyone's younger and uh, sort of family life, uh, it's okay to talk about our work and get advice about and people help mm -hmm. each other out a lot. Certainly, um, I try to do that too. I'm now the recipient of the help and before I would be the one to say, hey, you know, I'll pick up your shift. You're, you know, for whatever reason you need to get out early, I'll, I'll take your call, things like that. I feel like the other cool thing about your department is that that type of advice giving like bleeds into the operating room and like sort of lends itself to medical advice. And it you're the room 23 and 24 are the few rooms where you see colleagues and other attendings come into the room interpret echoes and just kind of like chit chat about how the case is going um and so as someone who was like first starting off their cardiac rotations it was just so fascinating to hear two attendings just talking about a case um what goes like what goes through your mind when i say things like that like can you put yourself in a situation like that oh absolutely i completely agree with that i think Part of it is the subspecialty itself, cardiac. Um, when we are in the case, we do um, guide the surgical care. So most of the time, most of the scenarios where we call for help and sort of have other second opinions is when the uh, anesthesia provider is going to make a decision that's going to affect the, the consequence of the case. So whether it's a, should we repair or replace this valve or is this repair or replacement adequate? Does this need to be re, uh, you know, readjusted, or is this going to be okay? And I think anesthesiologists are not usually in those positions where they kind of in sort of in the general anesthesia world where they ultimately dis determine the surgical uh, progress. So I think because of that, it's sort of in a unique place, and our department is uh, our division is very strong, and we have uh, you know very talented. Uh, folks like uh, you know Andy Maslow and Herb Chen and these they have done this for a, a long time and they they know their stuff so I feel very when I first started here I was you know new attending and sort of two two three years out of fellowship so I was still very new and kind of honing my own skills so having that uh, backup and knowing that I could call for help and uh, have them sort of 
you know, be my support really, because they, they review it with us and, you know, I learn from them and they kind of help me make a better decision. I think that is very unique to cardiac. I don't think you don't see, you're, you're right. I didn't think of that, that you don't see it elsewhere. Uh, but I think that's important because that's kind of how we have supportive work environments. And I know that I have a backup. I know I have someone I can call if I'm not sure. And I um, feel comfortable doing it because, uh, you know, the help I'm going to get is going to be very good as well. I think that helps to create better work environments. I think we should all really be doing that. And um, I think for the most part, our department is pretty good about asking for help and people kind of helping each other out rather than creating this sort of solo provider, like, oh, it's your case, you figure it out. I don't think I've really come across that in our department. And I think that's really should be the norm everywhere. It should be that we help each other out and mm -hmm. uh, support, um, provide support, clinical support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of humility, I think, in anesthesia, and especially when emergencies come up. And actually, like, as you were just describing that, too, I'm thinking in my head, all of the simulations that we're a part of are basically designed for it to be one provider for the first few minutes. And then you almost immediately call for help and have colleagues come in and help you. Um, so the way we're training people is really designed to ask for help when emergencies come up. Yeah, I think it's old school teaching, like back in the day, perhaps, you know, the physician was this, you know, sole decision maker and loan provider, I think really in any in every field now we're moving towards a more team based approach. Because, uh, you know, just the wealth of information now, you know, it's not possible for one individual to really take everything in. And um, I, I think the more we can sort of get help and not just other physicians, but even, you know, so the other providers that are involved in the care. Not only will we get better care, uh, sort of better patient outcomes, but I think it's even a sort of a treatment for like preventing burnout because then one person doesn't feel solely responsible for everything, and there, it should be normal to be able to ask, you know, for people around. It's like, is there any other things that we're missing? Anything, uh, you know, any other advice? And people should have that ability to speak up. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point about burnout reduces your overall stress stress load throughout your career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things I also want to touch on in terms of cardiac is you, Jeff Hayward, uh, and Devin Flaherty started this initiative probably a couple years ago now with our ECHO teaching and our ECHO curriculum. Um, what inspired you guys to do that? And how do you think it's going so far? Yeah, that's um, something we've been doing, I think, two, two, three years now. Probably your class was the first class that had that. Um, and we've continued it since. So even the current CA1s will be starting that in January. Uh, I think uh, as part of cardiac, what makes cardiac anesthesia unique is the TE certification. So unlike um, any other subspecial, uh, any other sort of anesthesia, general anesthesia provider, we actually train in TEs, we get certified, and we are certified to do uh, TE ar around the OR, so it's a perioperative certification. So we're not cardiologists by no means, but we do the same uh, sort of role within the OR setting. So diagnosis and treatment and assessment of cardiac function. So that's such it's such a unique part of cardiac that that's really what cardiac fellowship ends up being all about, the, the TE training. So it's very common that people come out of that being very excited about echo because it's a completely brand new skill. And in my residency, I mean, I learned a little bit of it, but certainly not, not to the extent that I learned when I came out as a fellow. So it's uh, not uncommon that cardiac fellows come out, you know, being all excited about TE and wanting to share that information with the residents. And I think we got lucky in the sense that uh, the ASA released this POCUS curriculum. So there's been a push for point of care ultrasound and that's surface ultrasound, TTE, as well as lung and gastric, as you know. 
But the hardest part, if you ask um, you know, any journalist, will be the cardiac portion of it. And uh, given our TE background, it's kind of easier for us to sort of you know, flip everything around and think about it in terms of TTE. So, um, you know, when that focus curriculum came around and, you know, we'd, we'd all kind of individually done a lot of work in terms of either TTE or TE teaching. Um, so we came together and decided to put a so integrated curriculum, all uh, three of us together, where I think it's unique in terms of our resident lectures. You know, you can correct me where we have three different stations. We have a, a TE simulator, a TTE model, and then a slides where we go over pathology because you won't see pathology in the simulator model as easily. Mm -hmm. um, so all three of us are there and we sort of divide you you guys up and go to different um, stations and learn it and sort of try to learn it all together rather than individually. Uh, so I think it's going really well. I, you know, for the most part, most residents seem to enjoy it a lot. Um, it is the kind of niche field. So, you know, it's not everyone's uh, bread and butter, but folks who are going to cardiac or an ICU, uh, this is going to be very relevant. And ultimately, I think within five years, even a generalist will be expected to do point of care ultrasound. Um, so yeah, ultimately. definitely. It's going to be uh, relevant to everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially the POCUS stuff, like you said. Yeah, yeah, and I mean ASA is pushing big time for it with the the POCUS certification, and they have a lot of POCUS workshops at the ASA itself that you know I've participated in as well. And uh, more and more, uh, you know, ASA is pushing towards us becoming experts at POCUS so that we can guide clinical care using uh, ultrasound as a tool. Mm -hmm. Why did you go into cardiac anesthesia in the first place? I liked the procedures. I liked the, um, uh, you know, the TE aspect of it. But originally I went into anesthesia, wanted to do ICU. Hmm. Uh, my brother is an ICU doc, so I've kind of been influenced by him. Uh, and then I just ended up not liking the sort of ICU rounds and the sort of um, peripher peripheral work that goes with ICU. Uh, who, would ever, who would ever go into ICU? I, I, it's shocking. I, I still get amazed. Um, but you know, to each their own, we do need ICU docs, right? So, yeah. So I found cardiac anesthesia being ICU in the OR. So it had the best parts of ICU with the phys complex physiology, sick patients, um, procedures, TE, TTE, and, uh, just not having to deal with the stuff that I didn't really enjoy as much. So, um, that's kind of what pulled me towards cardiac. Are there particular cases that you like doing now in cardiac, like TAVERGE versus open hearts versus thoracic? I think the mix is really what's important. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do one or you know any one of those only because I think that variety is important just to kind of keep my mind engaged and thinking about different types of physiology and different pathologies. So each case has its own unique aspect to it. And certainly from a TE perspective, it's really only the open hearts that we can do that in. Um, so yeah, I, I do enjoy all the variety. I mean, you know, there's never going to be if anyone's saying their job is perfect and they love every single day, they're probably lying to you. Um, so every, every, no matter what, like there's going to be some days that are great and some days that are not. Um, it's not so much about the case. It's usually about, you know, what else is going on. Uh, but I do enjoy doing the cardiac cases in, I enjoy the tavern room and the thoracic room is great. And especially nowadays we're doing a lot more and the open hearts that keep coming through. When I was at university of Chicago, we did a lot more, you know, heart transplants, lung transplants, things like that. Um, we don't do that here, and I don't mind that, as that is sort of a unique aspect in, in and of itself. But certainly our calls tend to be better when you don't do transplants in the middle of the night. So Right, right. Um, that was kind of one of those, like, 
decisions I had to make when I was choosing a job and I didn't mind taking a job that didn't have those, um, you know, sort of while I miss those cases, I don't miss doing them in the middle of the night. Especially probably now as a new dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess I should give my, my two, two or three years ago and give myself kudos because now yeah. I appreciate it even more. <laughs> exactly. And you're a medical student here at Brown. Correct? That's correct. Yes, I'm D12. Uh, do you remember anyone in the department when you're a medical student here? Absolutely. In fact, uh, funny stories, like right after I started, uh, I sat down with Fred Rodenberg and I, uh, you know, and I don't expect him to, of course, remember me giving him the number of medical students that go through with him, but he's like one of the most popular attendings. He has his own personal anesthesia rotation where students will shadow him. While I did not do that particular rotation during my regular anesthesia rotation, I spent some days with uh, Dr. Rodenberg. And I went up to him and said, you know, you are the reason that I went into cardiac anesthesia because I still remember I was with him in the cardiac room and he went over all this cardiac physiology and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then uh, I like, not only did I go into anesthesia, I went to cardiac anesthesia and then I was part of the cardiac group and Dr. Rodenberg had just stepped down. So basically had, you know, in, in essence, taken up his space, his spot in the cardiac group. And he looked at me like, wow, so medical students are now his colleagues and, you know, and yeah. it's amazing the amount of impact he's had over the years, uh, you know, to Brown med students, because for the longest time, we did not have a residency. Right. So we had very little exposure to anesthesia and really didn't really understand what, um, as medical students, what an anesthesia residency would be. So if it wasn't for Dr. Rodenberg, there'd be, I'm sure there's generations of uh, anesth Brown anesthesia or brown med students who ended up going to anesthesia who owe it to Dr. Rodenberg, and I'm certainly one of them. That's such a cool story. Yeah, it really is. And I told him about it too, and he's like, I need to retire. But he's still <laughs> with us. He's still working with us. I think he's retiring. So. He is very much still with us. Yes, yeah, that's nice. right. I was just in the EP with him uh, a couple of days ago. That's right. Yeah, but he's yeah. great. I mean, he continues to be heavily engaged in med student teaching and resident teaching. And it's just a, it's a pleasure having learned from him, and I still learn from him. And, uh, yeah, I, I, just, I clearly remember him and there are a few others that have, you know, many of them have now retired, but he was one of those who has like this lasting impact on me as a med student. And then I got to work with him as an attending. So I got very lucky. Yeah, very cool. And before you're at Brown, you're at Clark University? Clark University, that's right. It's a small track, track star? Uh, not track. I was not a track star. I was actually a swimmer at Clark. Swimmer, swimmer. Right, right. Yeah, you would think, yeah, being from Kenya, you would think I'd be a track star, but that's your... Classic uh, nature versus nurture story. Um, so no, I did not run. In fact, I never ran until I went to Chicago. Um, but I swam there, and uh, that's right. I, it was amazing. I mean, Clark is the middle of nowhere in Worcester, Mass, and I came from Kenya, and you know, ended up at Clark, and it's a, it was one of those like life changing experiences there. Um, and I met my wife Saima there, so I have to say it was is the sort of you know best pivotal thing pivotal moment of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what year did you guys meet? Freshman year? Yeah. For, yeah. A few months in. Nice. Nice. And how do you end up in Worcester, Massachusetts from Kenya? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Um... This is an intermission. We're about halfway through the episode. Feel free to pause it, give yourself a mental break, and come back to it later. If your commute's not over or you're really into the episode, feel free to keep pushing forward. But if you need to take a break here and reset yourself, Go ahead, put the podcast down and come back to it at a later time. It does seem like most of the guests save their best for last, so you'll be sure to want to check out the rest of the podcast and the end of the episode to see what everyone has to say. Um, 
So you know, a couple of different factors. So I was when I was in Kenya, I was actually in the British system of schooling, and I did um, the British system, which is the A level of GCSE system, and it basically lines us up to go to university in the in the UK. But right as I was getting close towards, um, we call it Form Five, which would I guess be eleventh grade here. Uh, we won the diversity lottery and the U.S. green card lottery. We, my parents randomly applied, and it's like one of those one in a million chance of winning it, and we happened to win it the year that I was about to get ready to graduate. So it was like, you know, perfect timing in that sense. So I still remember um, my my dad sitting, I came home from for lunch, because that's what we do in Kenya, everybody goes home to have lunch. And I came home from school, and my dad's like, here's a letter from the U.S. Department of State. Condoleezza Rice had signed this letter saying, congratulations, you can come to the, you can come to America now as a green card holder. I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what, are you, what are you showing? You know, 16 years old, not right. planning to go to the to to the UK to study, and then he shows right. me this. Um, that that really shifted trajectory for me. And I still remember when I started, you know, the process of applying out because I because in in the UK after you finish high school you go straight to medical school. So of course I I didn't know any better. So I started applying to medical schools in the US mm -hmm. as I was of high school. And I realized, oh, wait, that's, I need a bachelor's degree first. So I got to almost as an afterthought, start applying to all these bachelor programs. So I applied everywhere. Uh, and then Clark was just one of those I got into. And uh, my brother happened to be doing his residency in Worcester, which is okay. why I ended up with Clark. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a sort of, it was just fate. It was just meant to be that I would end up at Clark. Clark actually does have a large international population. It's very small, about 2,000. And, probably had like 200 kids from, um, you know, international per class. I don't know if it's different now, but back then there was, I was actually not the only one from Kenya. There were like 10 other people from Kenya. There's a bunch more people from, uh, you know, Asia and India and um, other parts of Africa as well. And you were born in Kenya, correct? Yes, I was born in Mombasa, Kenya. So did your parents come from India and to Kenya? Yeah, so um, again, sort of, uh complicated story so my great grandfather my mom's side actually moved to madagascar from india and got married uh in tanzania to my gr my grandmother and then my mom was born in, in tanzania but then they moved to mombasa and then they lived there so my mom is actually from from kenya she went to school in kenya and did it kind of like me um, but my dad's side is actually from india so my, my parents my mom went to india to study met my dad and they moved to Kenya after. So I'm actually a second or third generation Kenyan on my mom's side. Um, my mom has very strong ties to Kenya. Uh, cool. still continues to, they actually still live there. They still live in Kenya and uh, we try to go when we can. And you've kind of been able to take this international background of yours and apply it to your current job. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, you know, you say international background, but it's really, that is me, you know what I mean? That That's the only thing I knew. Like when I grew up in Kenya, I didn't know that was normal, right? Like I was growing up and this is what I thought, you know, uh, this is all that I knew. So I didn't really know. It wasn't, it wasn't unique to me when I was growing up in Kenya. I know now when I tell, when I say, oh yeah, I was born and raised in Kenya, that's unique. But at the time that was normal. I, you know, only every other person I knew was only from Kenya. So, uh, yeah, so I kind of, you know, born and raised there and I kind of was part of the system and was, uh, I worked because I was interested in medicine. I was volunteering at the uh, hospital there, Coast General Hospital is a public hospital in Mombasa. And as you can imagine, not very well um, 
like as a volunteer, they would just let me do whatever I wanted. So I was a high school student and I was in the emergency department. So I did, you know, whatever menial tasks they needed. But when a patient would come in and needed some suturing, I still remember the uh, charge nurse said, there's nobody available to suture. And she handed me, this is a high school student. I've not even done any of this stuff. Hands me the sutures. I could go ahead and stitch this patient out. Uh, that was How'd it a, go? How'd it go? I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, kind of, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing here. And I, you know, felt sick to my stomach and I told the charge. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. He's find someone who actually is capable of doing this because this poor patient is like... Where, where was the laceration? Uh, I was on the head. Uh, it says, nice. uh, I mean, you know, these are the things you don't forget. So it was a prisoner who had escaped and they had a, it's called a panga in Swahili or a machete. And the, the police officer struck him in the head with it. So you, wow. back, you can see the cranium underneath. And the guy was so stoic and didn't move. And I think that was part of the reason why they handed it to me too. You know, it was just... Um, sort of a, you know, not a VIP or any means. So they're like, okay, who is the lowest on the totem pole? That would be the high school volunteer. So the, they're like, so she was, you know, she's like, tell me, go and suture this patient up. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know how to work this needle, you know. Yeah. Just, uh, fraught with issues. But, you know, those kind of experiences. And then I, um, you know, did it in high school. And I went back while I was in college. Every time I'd go to Kenya, I would go volunteer. I did an, an eye clinic volunteering where we would go to rural parts of uh, Mombasa and uh, perform eye exams. So this is hmm. a little more that I could do because uh, I was a first year medical student at the time. Um, it's through this organization called Lions Club, which is actually an international organization, has an American uh, standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would go and perform eye exams and r- rural parts where it was amazing to see the patients would not be able to see, you know, usually due to aging, they weren't able to read. And then we would put glasses in front of them and you could just see the joy in their eyes. They're like, oh my gosh, I can read now. I can see now. And it was just like instant. Uh, Mir- know, miracle. Yeah, it was like a miracle to them. And it was like such a simple sort of move that we did. And they, uh, w- the whole goal was to try to treat cataracts. So what they would do is, uh, you know, identify patients with cataract, bring them over to the city. Mombasa and perform free surgery. So not only did I do the outreach part, I was also sort of helping out with the surgical part. And those experiences really kind of stayed with me. And uh, since then, I've been trying to find a way to kind of do something small. I'm not trying to solve sort of major issues, but you know, sometimes when you see these big problems, it's so daunting that you feel like nobody, you you know, there's nothing you can do that'll make a difference. Um, I try to sort of break it down to something that I can control. So that there's something that I can contribute, um, a small step, and then perhaps we'll kind of, you know, flourish. And then there'll be more people like me who will be doing similar things. So, so I try to find simple ways to try to sort of give back and go back there and sort of, um, you know, practice anesthesia, teach anesthesia, mm-hmm. which is what we're going to be doing when we go to Rwanda. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the Rwanda trip. So this is going to be your second year going. How did you mm-hmm. first get involved? Um, so this, and I was saying, I've kind of always been looking to get involved in sort of global health anesthesia. It was hard during residency, although I did apply to a global uh, international uh, anesthesia residence scholarship. That's what it was called. I did not get in. This was back when I was at the University of Chicago. Um, but of course, you know, it's funny how things kind of work out because when I became an attending, I applied to be in the Global Health Committee at the American Society of Anesthesiology, so the ASA Committee on Global Health, and they're actually the ones that sponsored the resident scholarship. So it, it was 2020, you know, middle of the pandemic, and I was just part of the committee, and 
listening in and contributing where I could and looking for opportunities because that's really where it was. And an opening came up where they had an overseas training program in, in Rwanda and they were looking for someone to lead it. Um, so I applied and, um, you know, sheer luck or sort of my background, like, oh, this would be actually a good fit given, you know, uh, me being from Kenya and Kenya and Rwanda are neighboring countries. In fact, a lot of people in Rwanda speak Swahili, which is the uh, national language in Kenya. So, um, so it was a good fit. It wasn't perfect. I was looking to go to Kenya, but it was one of those like, you know, it's sometimes uh, best is not, uh, you know, better is better than best. Right. So right. the opportunity that I could get. And that's how I, uh, you know, got involved. And since then, I'm now char in charge of uh, organizing American volunteers to go to Rwanda to teach uh, the residents. So there's a residency, anesthesia residency program at the University of Rwanda. And we send volunteers every month from uh, some from Canada, some from the US. And we're in charge of teaching. So we do intraoperative teaching, the same thing we do here, go to the ORs, whatever case is going on. We help them teach clinical um, knowledge during uh, during the procedure and then they have academic time where they do lectures so we help uh, teach lectures simulation and um, yeah it was it was a great trip so my first trip was last year we went with a couple of residents and it's amazing you know the kind of impact you can have and it's not and I'm not doing anything sort of out of this world I'm basically doing the same thing I do here and talk about the same stuff it's a, one of the things that stood out to me was how similar their practice was to you know what we do here they induce with propofol. Yes, they have thiopentanol, but they, you know, use propofol for the most part if it's available. And, um, you know, so their airway management techniques are similar. They have a glide scope. They don't use it as much, but it's available. Um, so we try to sort of encourage them to try all these different techniques and um, teach them the basics because we, we were with the CA1 residents. So it's very much like teaching a fresh, uh, you know, resident in the States. And for the senior residents, we did some, uh, you know, advanced things like POCUS ultrasound. So they have ultrasound machines. So we were able to work with the senior residents in the ICU and do some cardiac lung ultrasound. Um, so it's, again, it's basically the same thing that I do here. And I just kind of do it with the University of Rwanda residents. Uh, let's pretend for a second I'm a fourth year medical student who is looking to go into anesthesia. And I'm thinking about different residency programs and I'm considering going to Brown because I know that they have an international elective. Um, what could you tell me about how it's going to impact my residency experience and my potential future career going forward? I'll take a step back because first thing I would say is that you have to choose a program um, based on sort of your own needs. So, you know, I say location tends to be the most important thing. So all this other stuff is actually great. But if you're not going to be happy at the program, whether it's because you're far away from family or you don't like the area that it's in, probably doesn't really matter what other cool stuff they have. Um, so I get, I mean, I'm obviously faculty advisor for the medical school anesthesia interest group and the preclinical elective. So I do have these conversations a lot. And I talk about, that's kind of where I say, it's like, you know, you have to first look internally and decide for yourself whether or not a certain area, uh, you know, location or program is a good fit for you. Um, once you've decided that, then you can kind of sort of look at the more details I think Brown is unique in that it has um, not only has this international program, but has sort of many opportunities um, because as a fourth year student, you don't really know where your interests are going to be by the time you're a CA3 resident. This is obviously a senior totally. elected. Totally. Um, so you don't know, maybe this is not something that you like, that you may not like, and maybe you like something else, like whether it's research or, you know, bioinformatics or, 
you know, some some other sort of branch of anesthesia. So, you know, again, deciding solely on something like a CA3 elective is, you know, sort of kind of far-fetched. But um, if you do end up at a place like this, yeah, exactly, you get to go. Unfortunately, we haven't, you know, who knows what's going to happen in three years, but this time it's limited, so we're not, you know, it's not like every resident can go. Uh, so, the you know, when the residents that do in, in fact go, I think it just gives you perspective about, uh, you know, global health and sort of care worldwide. We get very siloed in our own world here, and we don't realize the need that may exist elsewhere. I think it affects my own practice, you know, simple things like trying to minimize waste and trying to, uh, you know, sort of appreciate sort of the resources that you do have, because not everywhere else these resources exist. And um, just being thoughtful about, you know, the, the impact we can have. So simple things like providing, you know, education and lectures to, uh, you know, folks in Rwanda. And Rwanda is just one program. There's probably programs in, you know, many different areas of need. Um, so if we sit in, in the U.S. and kind of keep things to ourselves, then, you know, you're not really helping sort of the global, um, you know, global anesthesia needs. So I think just being cognizant and sort of, because many times, again, this is not obvious. It's, it's not, it becomes obvious once you kind of like look into it, but we don't just, it's not top of mind. So we don't think about it much. So, you know, you sit back as a new attending or senior resident being like, oh, you know, I don't think I can have any impact. I'm just lowly resident in my program and I'm not doing any, you know, there's nothing I can do that's going to make a difference, which is just not true. So sometimes just it opens your eyes to the other kinds of opportunities that are out there. Um, and much of global health tends to be volunteering. So it has to come intrinsically. It has to come from the person who says, okay, you know, I want to commit my time and whether it's, you don't even have to travel. And global health really starts local. So, you know, certainly Rwanda and, you know, parts of Africa are in need, but sometimes even, you know, in certain parts of Providence, there is need for, you know, healthcare education and, uh, you know, providing sort of access to care. So it doesn't have to go far. So I think these kind of electives just open your eyes to the opportunities that are out there, things that you can do. And um, again, we we can't solve the world, world's problems, in, you know, as individuals, but certainly we can make, do our part, small steps. And then again, as an aggregate, hopefully we'll make the world a better place for everyone to live in. That was a really good answer. I really appreciated how you took a global concept and had had us bring it locally and how we can think about disparities on a local perspective, which I think is, is a really powerful thing. Absolutely. And I, I think when I think about it, I, I do think about it in a local perspective, but I do think about it when I was back in Kenya and sort of what I witnessed and, and on, I live here now. And of course, I'm you know, sort of thinking, you know, now from the U.S. perspective, but when I was in, I still think back to uh, sort of my experiences there. Um, so someone who has, who doesn't have an international background, but, you know, and from their own town, whether it's, you know, in a city or town, they, they, there is healthcare needs there as well. So right. you don't have to go as far as Rwanda and Kenya. You can just sort of find opportunities locally. And I think Brown is very good at that. The university, uh, the undergrad and the sort of grad school does have these kind of opportunities. So being at a place like Brown with, with such a strong um, sort of university, mm -hmm. you can find these kind of opportunities. It's just you have to step up and you have to have the interest to kind of lead these kind of things. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Cool. All right, last thing I want to touch on in your career is something outside of medicine, um, which you haven't really incorporated yet into your career, um, but your MBA pro, your MBA degree, which you've gotten over the past couple of years. 
Uh, one, what motivated you to get that? And two, where, what do you want to do with it? Yeah, um, I, I think it informs sort of my daily, daily sort of decision making and things. You know, it's MBA. I feel like sometimes it's just a way of thinking. Sort of gives you sort of um, different perspectives. So again, going back to when I was in Kenya, going through the GCSE system, we choose our track of arts versus science very early. So I was probably 15 years old when I had to make a decision: Am I going to do sciences or am I going to do arts? So I decided sciences, of course, and the only classes I took for the last two or three years while I was there was, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, and statistics, and mathematics, all these uh, sort of STEM things. So when I came to college, I, I, I thought that was normal. That's what people did where I was. And I came to college and I realized, wait a second, there's I can do these other kinds of classes. I can learn about healthcare economics. That's a class I took when I was at Clark. Um, you know, psychology and, uh, you know, uh, finance. I didn't even know that was an option for me. But of course, in undergrad, I was so focused on getting into med school that I continued to do classes in uh, in science. But Clark being a liberal arts school forces you to take classes beyond um, your own primary field. So I had to take a class in English. I did an English poetry class. And I did a um, philosophy class. It was philosophy of love, interestingly enough. And my econ class was healthcare economics. So those kind of things I didn't even know were an option when I was how did, in. How did you do in those classes? How did you do in philosophy of love? And you know, I think, you know, pre-med, yes, it's about the stuff you learn, but it's really about how good of a test taker and how much, how good of a uh, studier you are, like how well you can True. study and focus in on the detail. This, you know, when people are like 4.0 GPAs and pre-med doesn't mean that they're well-rounded. They're just good at studying and good at taking exams. And I was definitely that person. Uh -huh. So I did well, but not because of, I learned anything. It's just because I knew what I needed to do. And I could sit in the library for hours and hours and get, get the stuff done. So, uh, but I think those, you know, then I went to medical school and of course everything kind of, you know, sort of goes haywire. So I, I was always interested in uh, finance and economics and sort of, I was always kind of keeping, a, you know, reading things and, uh, sort of keeping myself, sort of trying to educate myself. But it was really in residency that I sort of remember I was a CA2. My wife just matched into her neurology residency in Chicago. I was at University of Chicago. So I knew I was going to, after fellowship, come back to Chicago for at least a year or two years. And I, I had just um, starting CA3 year. I was not selected to be chief resident. So I had CA3 year where I had to kind of make a decision. I was like, am I just going to be just, just go through C3 year doing, you know, what I was doing there anyway, and, you know, sort of excelling in the anesthesia part of things, and, or was I going to try to sort of, you know, venture out and do something differently, and I think by being in at University of Chicago, which has a very strong business school, and knowing that I was going to come back to Chicago, that's when I decided I'll take the GMAT and uh, sort of branch out, so I decided, you know, I studied for that, took the exam during my CA3 year, applied during fellowship year, and got into business school that I started as a first year attending. So I did it part-time and uh, I learned a lot. And I think ever since I finished, you know, it's just sort of changed again, how I make daily decisions, it gives me more of a long-term perspective. I certainly use it for personal finance um, reasons, but you don't need an MBA for that, um, whether it's for myself or the lectures that I give the medical students. Uh, I, I don't know what the long-term plan is. This is one of those you know, I was listening to a podcast and Atul Gawande said, before age 40, you should just say yes to everything because you don't really know what you like and, you know, you haven't been exposed to a lot of things. Um, and then once you're doing it, you realize whether or not you're enjoying it. If you enjoy it, you keep doing it. 
And if you don't enjoy it, then you should stop. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I kind of just wanted to get exposed and sort of get a sense of what it was like. And uh, and I do enjoy it and I continue to keep up with it. I, I don't know where it's going to take me. I think it's one of those like five or 10 year plans that, you know, in the future, having a sort of business degree certainly helps. Um, and hopefully, you know, I'll sort of start incorporating it as well. But even if I don't do any of that stuff, I can, you know, just the knowledge alone, I think is worth, you know, sometimes you just want to learn things for the, the curiosity yeah. of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and running your own personal finance saves you enough money that you can pay for the MBA multiple times over <laughs> the course of your career. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The other point you made, it just kind of impacts the way you make everyday type decisions. I'm sh like, I'm sure it's just a different way of evaluating risks and benefits. Absolutely. I think it gives you a bigger, like a sort of more long-term perspective is really what it is. Like a lot of medical school, pre-med, med school residency is short-term. What am I going to do next year? What's my next fellowship? You know, you're sort of very focused on kind of your short-term things. And um, and when we become attendings, we don't really know sometimes what people get lost because every time there was a path, like when you were a first year resident, you were figuring out what residency, what fellowship you want to do. And then you're going to go to that fellowship. And after mm -hmm. fellowship, you're going to be an attending. And now you're an attending and there's nothing. What's next? There's nothing. Right. Right. Like you've just been attending forever now. And I think um, having this sort of, you know, extra skill set, I guess, or extra thought process or sort of an outside perspective, uh, I think helped me kind of like, you know, work through that a little bit better. And uh, yeah, I, I think, again, you don't need to do an MBA for it. I think I did the MBA because I was at University of Chicago. I was going to be able to go to a strong uh, business school. I did a part-time program so I could do it in person. Um, but you can certainly, people can learn it on their own, you know, whether it's books or courses. There's so many resources now online, including podcasts. And um but it's just one of those things that you have to have that interest and it has to be intrinsic. If you're interested in it, I think it's worthwhile and certainly you can gain a lot from it. Right. And it's probably not fair of me to say that you don't use it because you you give the lectures. You give the lectures to medical students. Um, I think we've talked about maybe even talking to residents a little bit about it. Um, but it's definitely a missing pillar in medical education of just like simple finance literacy um, and future planning. And I feel like having somebody with a background like yourself to lecture medical students or even residents can be really helpful. Yeah, I agree with that. So yeah, I mean, I mean, people have made careers out of this, right? Like you can go online and find people who literal job is personal finance education directed towards medical medical um, professionals. And uh, so I again, I can't solve large problems. I start small, so I give uh, sort of a sort of three-hour workshop to the four, fourth-year medical students. I'd love to give one to the residents too, so maybe we can, you can help me sort of make that happen before you graduate. And then, uh, yeah, and then again, it sort of builds from there. So, you know, I've already had a few other attendings who have shown interest, and then, you know, I can sort of incorporate them and make it in, you know, the places that have uh, fi uh, personal finance-type curriculums that last a semester at, mm -hmm. at the high school level, starting from first year. That's really when you want to start this. So I've started small, but hopefully over the years, it'll kind of build on itself. But again, you don't need an MBA for any of this stuff, but uh, it certainly helps and certainly mm -hmm. gives you that credibility so that when I stand in front of them and I say, oh, yes, University of Chicago booth, uh, MBA, yeah. um, so that's why you Bol should listen bolsters to you. Yeah, bolsters yeah, you. So I guess then people are like, oh, I guess I should listen to what he has to say. <laughs> it's not just another conversation you're having in the break room. Uh, 
Right. Getting like your, <laughs> your father's friend's advice about how to manage your money. Yeah. Or even worse. It's like, trust me, I, I, you know, it's like when this whole Bitcoin and meme stock craze is going on. Yeah. Um, it was just nonstop, even in, um, maybe in the resident lounge, but certainly in the attending lounge. I was like, I don't know. I, I know this is the way it's going to be I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. In a bull market, everyone's going to win. But now in when times are in the bear market, people are like, oh, okay. Actually, I guess I didn't really know what was going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I think it just kind of gives me that, that perspective and sort of that background knowledge that uh, you can sort of work through it so you can control yourself <laughs> during those times. Yeah. I have no doubt that's going to take you, you're, you're going to use it somehow or, you know, it's, or you're already using it, like I said, but if anything, I think fulfilling that thirst for education is, is so valuable. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's something completely different to me. Like, you know, there are many people who do finance degrees and stuff in college than who kind of have that knowledge. Uh, but I didn't, so I wanted to kind of learn it. And now it's just up to me to kind of keep it up, you know, again, through blogs and books and uh, podcasts and things like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, the opportunities are limitless. And as you have shown yourself, you, you, the only thing restricting is usually your own thought yourself. process and yourself. You're, oh, it's always self-limiting beliefs. Uh, and these are the things that kind of open your mind to say that, you know, there's other things that you can do. And uh I enjoy clinical medicine, so I'm in no rush to certainly get out of that. So, you know, if that was something I didn't enjoy, then I would have that option of saying, you know what, I'm going to stop doing what I don't enjoy and perhaps start something on my own or, uh, you know, do consulting. And, you know, MD, MBAs get consulting positions very easily mm -hmm. um, and get consulting positions. So it just gives me that other option. So any, you know, any day that I feel like clinical medicine is not doing it for me or, you know, if I'm not uh, able to keep up with it. See you guys later. I'm pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it gives you those options. I mean, sometimes yeah. I love it. I love it. Just knowing it's just about the knowledge about knowing what's out there and uh, right. you know, what else you can do. What your what your worth is. What your worth is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time, Doctor Asher. This has been awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for uh, I, including me. Of course, I see a lot of myself in you, um, and it's funny. Lillian asked me like why you were going to be the first one because she was like you're, he wasn't the first one you interviewed and i was like well i had some intentionality in how i ordered everything really just a couple people um but you're one of like a few people besides myself who like encourages me to do this stuff and like keep going with it so i had to pay my dues and pay my respect to you well thank you i mean it's very motivating that you kind of do this as well and you know our stories are not you know especially it's this true which is why I kind of enjoy what you're doing because even the 10 minutes that I heard about Maslow, there's like more things that are common about people than not. We just focus on what's different. Um, so even those 10 minutes I heard, I, was, I could hear things that, you know, sort of I could relate to. And things like this kind of, I think, bring that sort of commonality a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, there's more in common between what you, you know, go through and what I've been going through and the decisions you made and, you know, sort of the things that I had to do. So absolutely. Um, I'm glad that you kind of stepped up and said, you know what, it doesn't matter what, this is what I want to do and this is what I enjoy. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't matter what everyone else says or it doesn't matter what uh, what the standard traditional path of things is. I'm going to start carve my own. So kudos yeah. to you for doing that. Thank you for including me in this. Hopefully it lives up to your expectations. Because it's going to go, it's going to go viral. <laughs> it goes viral. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it'll go viral in Kenya too. I'll send it to all. Oh, perfect. It's going to go internationally viral. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> look at this guy now right? yeah yeah um, right. but, uh, yeah no i'm happy to do this i'm happy to support you and sort of all your endeavors not only now but even in the future so don't forget about us when you're a big shot i see <laughs> it's interesting kind of thinking i'm you took me down memory lane sometimes like oh yeah back in the day <laughs> it's fun it's very fun it's kind of fun all right man awesome. good chatting with you I'll see you yeah, in person I'll soon. You, uh, hang out again. Come come by sometime and you guys Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear, check out the podcast homepage where you can check out other episodes that have been released. And make sure you hit the subscribe button so you get all the new episodes to your homepage as they drop. Also, if you like the educational stuff, check out the Instagram page and the TikTok page, Keywords by Kenny, and also the website, keywordsxkenny.com, to see some more full in-depth explanations for keyword topics.